In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. We create these narratives that people are not interested in the gospel. That's nonsense. There are, people are desperate for something that's true and meaningful. Oh my gosh. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we, we salute you. you. Hey guys, thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and I'm here with our producer co-host, and good friend, Dale Culver. How you doing, my man? I'm doing awesome, buddy. I'm your buddy? Yes, buddy. You're fired. Hey, I'm really excited about the, our guest today, man. Yeah, that's right. I want you to call me boss. Boss <laughs> Lord, man. Lord Boss Jim. man. Lord Jim. Anyway, hey, I'm excited today. We got a great guest on the show. This guy is one of the leading men's experts in the nation, if not the world. He's the founder of, I think it's the largest men's ministry in the world. They have reached 35,000 churches and 10 million men since their inception. He's written a new book. We want to really talk about this book. I'm really excited, man. So based on that, do you got a man word today? I do. Let me see. I'm going to guess it. It's actually one of the chapters in the book. It is? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, uh-huh. I'm going to go with identity. And you had it open Identity. To it. Is that the open. word? You got here. What's it was the word? to it. Friendship. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to go with something gnarly yeah. like identity. Okay. Those are so important that we have uh, quality friendships. We're in my small group uh, or my team. We're in the Trails End right now. Uh-huh. And uh, we're talking about finishing strong. And uh, in order to finish strong, you have to have a group of men around you to help uh, lift your arms and uh, help you uh, call you out. And uh, be sharpening agents for you. Yeah, so friendships are yeah. huge. I agree. I was in Illinois talking to a group of men this weekend, and we're talking about who are your men on the roof. And that's yeah. so important to friendships, because guys, we tend to defer and default to isolation. And so that was a really powerful chapter in the book. And we're going to get him on and talk about that in just a second. Hey, I want to brag about our new guest today, my new friend, Patrick Morley. Pat, how you doing, man? Good. Jim, greetings. Welcome to you. Man, I'm so and, excited uh, to have all you. all of your guests today, it's really exciting to be with you. and. You too, Dale. This is really awesome. Yeah, yeah, man. Thank I'm excited. So me. let me let me tell you guys about Pat. Pat uh, he, he goes by Patrick or Pat. So I'll, you may hear me going back and forth throughout the interview. So Pat's 70 years old. He lives in Winter Park, Florida, with Patsy, his wife of 46 years. He, he wrote earlier that she's his best friend. Pat is the leading expert in what makes men tick. He wrote the book. 
Man in the Mirror. It sold over 4 million copies, and it was selected as one of the 100 most influential Christian books of the 20th century. Pat is best-selling author of 21 books, including his newest book, The Christian Man, a conversation about 10 issues men say matter most. And we're going to focus on that book today. Pat is the founder of, as you've heard already, of Man in the Mirror, which has helped 35,000 churches impact 10 million men worldwide. So it's my pleasure to bring on our show, Patrick Morley. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Hey, man, we're going to throw you into the fire with our rapid fire round. I know you're going to handle this well because I know what you've done in your ministry. So you ready to rock and roll? Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Okay. What I've done is I've picked phrases out of various books I've read, out of The Christian Man, and just out of The Man in the Mirror in general. And I'm just going to ask you these phrases and ask you quickly to explain what they mean to you. All right? Yeah. Here we go. First one, No Man Left Behind. Well, of course, this is a term out of the military, but essentially, I'm prone to give long answers, so I'm going to try to really keep it short. But the bottom line is that most churches, if they have 100 men in their church, think if they get six guys in a Bible study meeting at Odark 30 on Wednesday and 12 guys coming to a, a monthly prayer breakfast, that's 20, you know, 18 guys in, the, in, in some kind of men's thing, and they think they can check the box. Well, what's the problem with that paradigm is, you know, the other 82 men. And so No Man Left Behind, really, we've developed a model that is really why we exist. It's to help churches figure out how to disciple all of their men more effectively, whether they're in the men's ministry or not. Yeah, and that was a great book. That was really impactful for me as well. I think I read that book about, I'm going to say about eight years ago. Really impactful. So thank you for that. So the next yeah. one, I have, to ha- I have to throw this one in, Man in the Mirror. Yeah. So... I'm thinking about the man in, in the mirror. mirror. No, I can't sing it. <laughs> Little Michael Jackson right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the man in the mirror, really, I was started teaching a Bible study in 1986. I still teach it, by the way, and uh, 33 years later. Wow. And the guys just really seemed to be resonating with the material. And so I had this idea that I should maybe put it into a book. And so thought I'd give that a try. And uh, basically what I did, did – Basically, what I did was I just wrote about my problems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the subtitle of that book is The 24 Problems <laughs> uh, Facing Men. And uh, so, yeah, kind of covered the waterfront. I didn't, you know. And by the way, that book was DOA. Uh, what was I thinking? A real estate developer down in Central Florida writing a book. What yeah. was I thinking? Yeah. We had a warehouse full of books. Nobody wanted them. And then uh, the publisher came up with the idea of starting to maybe give them away to pastors, you know, just, just to get rid of the inventory. And uh, the pastors started going into Christian bookstores to pick up their free books, and then the book took off. Wow. Well, that, yeah. <clears throat> that was right in the Promise Keepers movement as well, right? So wasn't that a huge part of getting that rolling? So that was in 1989. Uh, I think God... You know, anytime somebody thinks they have a unique message from God, they don't. Whatever God's getting yeah. ready to speak, he generally puts that into the hearts and minds of thousands and tens of thousands yep. of yep. his children. So there were a lot of things going on in 1989. Uh, Promise Keepers was uh, getting started. Um, Point Man, Steve Farrar, was coming out. Stu Weber wrote a book not long after that. Yeah, that, that was the era. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on there. Stu wrote, was it Four Pillars of Man's Heart? Stu wrote, I think. So, so the, the first book that I remember him writing was Tender Warrior. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, here's the next one here. And I, I thought this was a really interesting phrase. 
Uh, I'd never heard this phrase before, and I just want you to explain a little bit more. Obituary identity. So this is out of the new book. And so, you know, most people really struggle with conceptualizing what identity even is. Yeah. So for, for most people, it's, you know, what I do, what I look like, where I live, who I know, who my friends are, where I'm from, and how much money I have, things like this. And so, but these are these are the things that people say about you when you're gone. So they're your obituary identity. And I, I in the book, I just basically contrast that with your naked before God identity, which of course for the Christian is based on faith in Jesus and then understanding the roles uh-huh. that He has for us and the attributes of the Christian. Yeah, that was. I just I really I, like I'm that. I'm sorry for making your rapid fire machine gun thing go too slow. Oh, oh no, it usually goes slow. It's okay. <laughs> Hey, so how about this one? I want you to unpack this one a little bit more. Theology of work. So most men, my experience is, well, first of all, the average man is, is awake 112 hours a week. And so the average man spends about 50% of his time working, if you include you know, getting ready and drive time, about half his entire life working. And yet most men do not consider work to be a spiritual activity. They don't have a theology of work. So in the chapter on work in, in the book, um, by the way, I hope we get a chance to talk about the process that uh, by which the book came into existence. Totally. Too, by getting, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so this theology of work thing, I just really wanted to spend some time just really helping men understand that that work is is not uh, – work is, is ministry. It, you know, it's not something we do – that we tolerate until we can have a, uh, a water break and then talk to somebody about Jesus on a break and then maybe go back to the drudgery work and then take somebody to uh, lunch to have some Christian fellowship and then go back and tolerate the work. According <laughs> to God, the work itself is ministry. There's intrinsic value in the work that we do. Every vocation is holy to the Lord. Yeah, I love that chapter because you talked about <clears throat> Go find the word secular in the Bible. Yeah. It, right. it isn't there. Not there. Not and so this, I, I really like that, that, that a process of work and, and how guys are to address it. And so, hey, let's uh, jump on in here. Uh, some of these guys, most of these guys probably know you. Some of them may not. Why don't you tell us a little bit more, Pat, about your life, what makes you tick, uh, maybe some the man in the mirror. You know, what's your why, man? Give us a little bit about your story. Well, I have a pretty deep why. Um, my father when he was two years of age, was abandoned uh, by his dad. He was the youngest of four children. And uh, so, long story, but my, my dad grew up in poverty. When he became a man, he had to decide. Uh, in fact, he went to work when he was six years old. Had, my dad had two jobs when he was six years of age. Whoa, what? He got up with his older brother, Harry. They worked on a bread truck at 3 a.m. and then took a paper route. Had a permanent tardy slip to school. Um so when my dad became a man, he had to decide whether or not he would uh, repeat the cycle or he would try to be a cycle breaker. Of course, he didn't have those words. but And you can imagine how glad, of course, I am that uh, my dad wanted to be different. My, in fact, my dad's legacy, you know, some, well, anyway, my dad has this tremendous legacy because he did not want to be like his dad. Mm. He wanted to be different. And, but he had a problem. So he had never felt the scratch of his father's whiskers. Uh, he had never 
heard his father read him a bedtime story. He had never uh, tossed a ball in the backyard, never tussled, uh, had his hair tussled by his dad, never wrestled on the ground, never heard a truck door slam at the end of the day, signaling that his dad was about to re-enter the family orbit. And so basically, my dad was left to guess at how to be a father to me and my three younger brothers. So, bottom line, uh, he realized that he needed to get some moral and religious instruction for his four sons. So we went, became part of a church. Unfortunately, it was a church that did not have a vision to disciple my dad. In other words, there had never been any, any men in that church who had been sitting around a table before my dad got there and asking the question, okay, when a guy walks up to the front door of our church, opens the door and brings his young family in, why did he just do that? You know, what is the problem he's trying to solve? What does he need from us? How can we help him? Nobody had done that. Mm. And so they just put him to work and he had a strong work ethic, having worked since the age of six. So by the time he was 40 years of age, my dad was the top layman in the church. I was wow. in the 10th grade. My youngest brother was in the third grade. And he just got burned out, Jim. And so we left church and uh, I quit high school uh, in the middle of my senior year, about a year and a half later. My younger brother followed in my footsteps. He eventually died of a heroin overdose. Oh, whoa. I have a younger brother who is a recovering uh, alcoholic and a hermit. And then I have another brother who never had uh, held a job for more than six months until he was 50 years of age. And so... My dad just never saw any of this coming. And so when I said I have a why, I really do have a deep why. Because when uh, I was married to my wife, uh, I mean, I really loved her, but I, I basically tricked her into thinking I was a Christian. And I think she, <laughs> well, I think she wanted to be tricked. She liked me too. But uh, she was a believer. She was a believer. I was not. And uh, it was very clear we had an ambiguity of terms about what it meant to be a Christian. So... Basically, one day I was just taking my frustrations out. My my money was my god, success was my idol, and uh, so in fact, my life philosophy was could be summed up with this sentence: "Money will solve my problems, mm. and, and success will make me happy." But uh, as it turned out, I I, I did very well and uh, met all of my goals. But what I found is that success actually made me miserable. And so I was taking these frustrations out on my wife, which is what guys do. You know, we pick the person closest to us and we tend to, you know, just cast the blame on them. And so that's what I was doing. So one morning I uh, was ranting and raving and, I, and I, I said to her all these things that a guy should not say to a woman. She uh, looked at me with tears kind of, you know, rolling down her face and she said, she asked me this question. She said, Pat, is there anything about me that you like? And of course, I felt like I'd been tasered. So <laughs> I wandered off to the office and just thought to myself, you yeah, know, what happened to you? Morley, you, you wanted to be somebody. You wanted to do something with your life to lead a life of significance. But you're just really a nobody headed nowhere. And it was true. And so then, um, so that's my dad. That's the early part. Well, then the third and final piece of this is that I uh, one day realized that I, I needed to 
I needed help. And the only place I knew to, and the most logical place for a man to seek help is the church. Yeah. And, and fortunately, we went to a church that understood that. And so when I reached out, I, I've got this thing I do with our field staff. We have 100 field staff. And so I have this thing I do with our field staff. I call it doorknob theology. So just to understand that the, the doorknob of the church, the front handle of the church, when a, when a man reaches out his hand, just if you're listening, just picture reaching a young man reaching his hand out for that front door. Just think about all of the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms mm. that have been that have been battling that man getting to that point. And then think about the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming all those forces. Think about all the all the mothers and grandmothers and sisters and wives that have been praying, uh, even daughters that have been praying for that man to reach out for that door handle. And uh, and they just realize what a holy, sanctified moment it is. Well, Jim and uh, Dale, when I reached out for the door handle, there were some young guys in that church, and they were ready. They, they understood what had just happened, took me under their wings, and uh, basically discipled me the way that uh, Dale was talking earlier about friendship. They befriended me. Uh, there are just some things that can happen in, in small groups and friendships that just can happen no other way. And so I am a believer today because of that church, because of those men. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's probably the main part of my story right there. Well, you know, Pat, it's been really interesting. When we have guests on the show, we've had over 200 guests so far, and we've had some unbelievable guests on the show. I mean, we've had guests that have sit, sat and had dinner with presidents of nations. But I would say that Man in the Mirror, the organization you founded, is the premier organization for men in the world. And uh, the impact that God has used in your life to impact men, I just want to say on behalf of men, thank you for that. So thank you. Well, appreciate that yeah the uh, i think that it, it's it, it you know you, we never exactly understand well actually we never understand any of why what happens or what's going to happen so it's all been kind of a mystery to me somebody asked me the other day oh one of our new staff asked me uh you know uh what do you see in the future and i said i have no idea i mean i have no idea how i got here so how would i possibly know what's going to come I said the word that I think best describes me and our ministry really is the word passenger. You know, we're just along for the ride. Yeah, that's so cool, man. Yeah. Well, hey, I want to jump into your book, uh, The Christian Man, a conversation about, uh, about the 10 issues men say matter most. And I thought the process of this book is really interesting. You know, most guys have a brainstorm, they pitch it to a couple buddies, and they go write a book. You know, that's what I've done. And so, but yours was interesting. Can you walk us through the process of this book and why you went that route? Very, very interesting. Well, I can. And so what's, here's what's fascinating to me. We live in an era in which opinions are given the same credence as facts. And this has been exploded through social media and, uh, and then with the 24-7 news cycle. I mean, people don't have news shows anymore. They really have opinion shows. <laughs> so what I decided that I wanted to do is instead of just having an opinion book, I wanted to write the book that men actually wanted to have. And so I'm, uh, I'm looking at the book right here. And on the back cover, 
it says, uh, there, there are these two questions. What are the most compelling issues you face right now? And what questions do you want answered on each topic? So here's what I did with those two questions. I gathered 24 younger guys, younger Christian guys at our office from 24 years of age to 47 years of age. Uh, the median age was 33. Six of the, the mode was also 33. Six of the men were 33 years of age. And I asked them these two questions. Uh, but what we, I decided to do instead of brainstorming, I decided to storyboard. Now, I'm sure many of your listeners have done storyboarding before, but for those of them who have not, but those, those of you who have not, it's, it's worth understanding that basically what storyboarding does, it's a process of democratizing the brainstorming process. As, because what usually happens in brainstorming is that you have a few, few men sitting around a table, or men and women, but we're talking about men today, and... Um, Somebody has a really, really good idea, and he's very persuasive. He's very charismatic. Maybe, who knows, maybe he was the captain of the debate team in college. And so he really carries the day, and, and so his really good idea is the idea that everybody decides to get behind and push. Yes. But, what's, but the problem is, is that over uh, on the other side of the table was, uh, was a geek, a nerd, uh, who maybe was afraid of his shadow, who actually had a great idea, not just a very good idea, but a really great idea. But he was intimidated and didn't bring it up. And so the, the, the best idea did not bubble up to the surface. So what storyboarding does is it allows the very best ideas to bubble up to the surface. So here's what I did. I had them I asked the question, okay, what are the most compelling issues you face right now? And then I, I said, write down on a post-it, one issue per post-it. And then as they were writing, I was furiously sticking them up on the wall and grouping them together, you know, like parenting and fathering, that's the same thing. So by the time we're done, let's just say we had 35 issues grouped together uh, on the, the wall of our conference room. And then I said, okay, now what I want you to do, I'm going to get each of you five little round sticky dots. So you have five votes. And what I want you to do is I want you to take these five sticky dots and go vote your top five issues. And one guy said, well, I can't do that. He said, there are a dozen of those things that are my top issues. I said, well, that's right, but you only get five votes. So pick your top five. And uh, so then, then they went to work and it was like, like a beehive. And when they were done, we stood back and there 10 of these 35 issues had bubbled up to the surface as being the most compelling issues that uh, that they were facing. So you interested in having me tell your listeners what they were? Uh, sure. Go ahead. They're, they're, they are the chapter titles these, and we're yeah, going to go through about chapters. seven of them. But yeah, go for it. Tell us what they are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So identity uh, shouldn't be any big surprise. Life balance. Spiritual growth, which was their number one issue, marriage, children, friendships, which Dale was talking about earlier, work, which you already mentioned, uh, uh, lust, culture, and sharing my faith. Isn't that interesting? Stand, and I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you would said, okay, I'm going to write a book about 40 issues, I would have covered all those, but those would have not necessarily been the 10 that I would have picked. But these are the issues that guys 
say matter most. Yeah, I was surprised at sharing my faith. I thought that was interesting. A lot and of these did it, it wasn't that was to me. I didn't think guys think about that. Well, you know, but, it, but they do think about that. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. just, 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 just two weeks ago here in Orlando, five, five guys from a local church went out to the University of Central Florida, and they worked from eight in the morning to five in the afternoon for five days. They presented the gospel, a clear presentation of the gospel, to ele- over eleven hundred students, and almost seven hundred of those students prayed to receive Christ, and ninety percent of them did it for the first time. Wow. So we. We create these narratives that people are not interested in the gospel. That's nonsense. They're, people are desperate for something that's true and meaningful. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I think with sharing your faith, I think a lot of times, I think we as men think about it, but more in the f- context of failure, like, oh, man, I'm afraid, or I don't know how to. We'll sh- and I think we do think about it a lot. We just don't know how to do it sometimes as men. And there's a frustration. Well, yeah, and that's why in the book I, I, I actually basically am, am – tutoring or mentoring or discipling the, the guys okay how do you do this yes. what what is the step-by-step process and uh hey we, hopefully we'll get a chance to well let's go i'll mention it now we're, we're going to be offering uh with the book a free coaching guide it's called the christian man coaching guide it's 33 pages and it's a free download so at you know at the christianmanbook.com guys can get a a free downloadable copy of that. They can get that. In fact, it, it went up yesterday, so it's up now. And uh, <clears throat> and Zondervan, our publisher, is encouraging us. I, I'm hoping that for every book that sells, we'll have 10 or 20 or who knows more downloads of that coaching guide because it, it, it you don't have to have the book. You don't need the book to use the coaching guide. But what can happen is, is that one guy can coach another guy through all these 10 issues. Or one guy can say, hey, to a more experienced Christian guy, would you coach me through these 10 areas? And uh, that step-by-step guide on sharing your faith is also in that coaching guide, which is what prompted me to think that. No, that's really good. I mean, we have an action item every week, and I think we'll do that this week. That's really, really positive. I love it. So, hey, let's jump into chapter one. I, I think uh, I loved uh, that you started off with the identity chapter. I think this is a... A huge thing with guys who tend to identify with their work, but you you wrote a quote here. I just uh, so the subtitle of this chapter is "Settling Who I Am and What My Life Is All About." And in that chapter, you wrote this. I thought it was very profound, Pat. You wrote, "Here's the problem: if what you do is who you are, then who are you when you don't do what you do anymore? If what you have, who you know, and where you're from." is who you are, then who are you when those things go away? And if those things go away, what does it mean? What does, what does that mean? Does that mean your identity is lost? Man, I feel like I'm reading Romans chapter 7. <laughs> that is really good. Can you unpack that for us? Because I think this is a huge issue with men. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think, Jim, this probably goes back to the obituary identity and the naked before God identity. And and that, that really is the summary of the obituary uh, identity. So, so the, the, I would say that most men tend to find their identity in their work. Increasingly, I think uh, there's a new generation of guys coming along who also find their identity in their, in their families. Agreed. And I think it's, that's, that's great. Uh, and good, by the way. Um, 
the problem with the whole work thing is that these are the people that are not going to be at your funeral. They're not going to be crying at your funeral. Um, now, I, I must also say, get, say as an aside that for most guys, their best friends end up being coworkers. Um, but that's only because they, uh, if they don't take the time to invest like Dale was talking about, uh, into into being part of a small group with some other Christian guys. But for most guys, the co-workers actually are the best friends. But the bottom line is um, when a man retires and he moves down here to Florida to live in a little condominium pot and drive around on streets made for golf carts, um, his buddies aren't going to be with him. And uh, they're not going to be keeping track of him. It's going to be the family. Yeah, and, uh, true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, when you put any guy in a group of room, a room with another group of guys, the first question they ask is, "Who are you?" The next one is, "What do you do?" So, work is a huge identifier for guys. Yeah. So, in fact, I don't know down here where I live. They don't say, "Who are you?" They just say, "What do you?" Hey, say, "Hey, what do you do?" When they say, "How you doing?" they don't really want an answer. They, that's a that's a social greeting. That's yeah. Like saying, that's like saying hi. Yeah. It's a question, but it's re- not really a question. Well, and so, yeah. you, you know, who am I, which deals with identity, and why am I here, which deals with purpose? I want to yeah. jump to chapter nine of your book, and chapter yeah. nine is just culture. God wants us to go find some unredeemed corner and claim it for the glory of Christ, you wrote. And I love that. So how does a man know... And you, you, you talked about, you know, men, there's a lot of their best friends are at work. I think men rally around a purpose... And I think this finding this unredeemed corner and getting other men to help you will is another way to uh, to uh, have friends. But how does a guy determine what that unredeemed corner that he's going to minister to is? How does he figure that out? Well, it's really interesting because in the in the book, but also in the coaching guide, and especially in the coaching guide, because I, there I've got some discussion questions for the coach and the and the mentee to to go over together. But you know what is it? You know what is what is it that breaks your heart? What makes your what's it breaks your heart? And then also, what does it makes your heart beat fast and puts a smile on your face? So uh, I know in in our city uh, we had a, a race ride. Okay, it wasn't a it wasn't a big race ride if you lived here, but it was big enough to make the evening news. And so uh, we had a uh, an African American lady that helped us clean once a week. And I happened to go home for lunch, which is what I typically have done. And um, she was there right in the middle of this. And she happened to live about a block from where this racial tension had taken place. And so I I asked her, I said, hey, Murthy, uh, what do you think it's going to take for us all to get together? And she said, oh, I don't know. And her shoulders were kind of slumped. And then I said, well, uh, what keeps you going? And she said, oh, I don't know. And then uh, anyway, then she just kind of walked in the other room. And I just went, I went into my home office and closed the door and just wept bitterly for about a half hour. And I said, God, you know, you know I'm a Christian. I'm a man. I'm here in this city. Uh, you know, I want to make a difference. This is the this is the unredeemed corner of our culture right now, uh, but I'm just one guy. What can I do? And so he, the Lord, gave me an idea, and 
so I just I called a meeting. I I asked a, a, an African American professor at a local university, who's a friend of mine, if he would help me get 20 black guys, and I would get 20 white guys. We invited them. Half of those came exactly 10 black and 10 white. And then we met for half a day on a Saturday. And and then uh, half of the guys in the meeting wanted to go do something, you know, change the world. The other guy said, no, 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 no. We don't even know each other yet. Let's get to know each other first. And uh, so since I was the, the guide for the day, I, I'm more into the building on relationships than just running off and doing something build the relationships first. And so uh, that prevailed. And, and then now we lost another half. And so now we have 10 guys left. Guess what? Five black, five white. Oh, wow. And then we, yeah, it was just really cool right down the line. And then what we started doing, <clears throat> Jim, is we met for a half a day a month uh, for five years. And all kinds of things came out of that in terms of Ministry started, guys going to seminary, putting robes on houses, all kinds of all kinds of things going on in the community. But that was the unredeemed corner. And so what I basically in this chapter, what I'm trying to do is give them a couple of examples. That's one. And then also give them some tracks that they can run on so they can they can find some unredeemed corner of culture and claim or reclaim it for the glory of God themselves. Yeah, I love it. I call that my Popeye moment. You know, that's all I can stand. Yeah. I can't stand some more. That's really good. Well, you know, the, the, the struggle with these guys, I, I noticed <clears throat> from your uh, your group of 24 men, <clears throat> these are we, we have an organization <clears throat> called Men in the Arena, and that is what we call our stress bubble. So men in the arena are yeah. men between 25 yeah. and 45 that have kids in the home, <clears throat> and they're living in this bubble of life where uh, everything's kind of chaotic and high stress. <clears throat> And so I appreciate that you wrote a book for that, you know, using that age group as your guide and as your sounding board. You know, uh, the big, I think a big struggle for that group is life balance, which is yeah. a chapter two of your book, which is the subtitle is How to Be Faithful with Everything Entrusted to Me. And you wrote in your book, I love this, I love, I love this quote, it was so powerful. You said, you have all the time you need to do everything God wants you to do. And you also wrote in that book that no in that chapter no man fails on purpose. Can you walk us through balance and how how guys living in the stress bubble can achieve balance? <clears throat> we know it's there, but it seems to be this ominous <clears throat> dim light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Well, this uh this was the second largest issue for the guys. Ah. So, yep. So spiritual growth was the biggest issue for them. Life balance was the number two issue followed very closely. And um, so the I think the, the key to a balanced life really is deciding in advance what's most important to you before you're under a lot of pressure to go and make some kind of a bad decision, a decision. And we call this setting priorities. And so here's the big idea for the for the guys listening today priorities will empower you to manage the pressures that will otherwise manage you. And so when we ask the question, what are the priorities of a Christian man? There's really no formulaic answer, but there are five priorities that are common to most Christian guys. And so in that chapter, <clears throat> what I do is I unpack them and then several subcategories under each of these five priorities. 
Should I mention what they are? Yes, please do. Yeah. So uh, the scriptures tell us, Jesus said that, the, you know, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. So the first two priorities are loving God and loving people. And uh, for most people, uh, for most guys, most guys are either married or plan to get married. If you, if you plan to remain single, but most guys are either married or plan to get married. And so loving people, the obvious categories are marriage, spouse, friends, you know. So we have some subcategories we talk about in there. So loving God, loving people, work, which we've already talked about on this podcast, money and ministry. Interesting, huh? Yeah, that was very, that was really interesting to me. Especially with yeah. the, the work. I mean, I understood the work as a priority in the sense that I have to go do this thing. Yeah. I didn't sense that as a, I didn't think that would be an inherent value, but I guess it has to be because mm-hmm. a third of your adult life is working. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thirds of sleeping. Just think about this. Yeah. If you live to be 90, you sleep for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that crazy? Well, and you, well, you don't, this- you don't, if you live to be 90, you don't work for the full 30 years, but you probably do work for 20, to 20 to 25. Well, especially in this stress bubble of life, you're that's when you're working the most. And yeah. so these guys are putting in eight, 10 hour days, especially the guys we're targeting. These are guys that are yeah. working hard. They're doing the thing. They're trying to figure out the balance mm-hmm. in life. And you called this mm-hmm. priorities over pressures. And I just pulled out this book, uh, Charles Hummel's book, Freedom from the Tyranny of the Urgent. And I thought mm-hmm. it kind of talked about, you know, what are the urgent items and what are the things that are important right now that I really need to do them? Otherwise, my life starts to unwind. Yep. So that's really, well, you know, let's take a short break. We'll come back in just a second. Hear from our sponsor cool. of, the, of the Men in the Arena podcast. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with a mission to help men become their best version and change their world. The war to change your world is epic. Every battle counts, and every man in the arena matters. Our closed Facebook forum for men, appropriately called Men in the Arena, is a great way for you to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Hey, because of my passion to see men get out of the bleachers into the arena, I want to offer a free resource to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Simply give us your email. We'll send you a PDF copy of the field guide. This is my 365-day bathroom book for men. It's a study of manly words in the Bible illustrated with great stories. This is a great resource for all of our arena men. Guys, you're going to love this book. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those in the anonymous bleachers pleading for you to get in the arena today? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. So I really liked your chapter on uh, friendships. That's chapter six. And I think that friendship, what we're seeing is this is so critical for men. And your your subtitle is Finding and Keeping Godly Friends. And when I read that... The key word to me, Pat, is godly. Godly friends. Can you unpack this for us? Yeah. So are we ready to go? Oh, we're ready. Oh, yeah. I just, yeah, let's rock and roll. <laughs> so um, I, I, I like to, t- first of all, when I am out speaking <clears throat> somewhere, it is axiomatic that uh, after I'm done and Guys come up and want to say hi or ask a short question. There's always one guy, it seems, standing in the background waiting for everybody else to clear out. And I know from experience that he wants to talk and that he has some 
gripping problem that's ripping him apart. So let's just take Tom in Nashville as an example. So one day, after everybody cleared out, Tom came up and slumped shoulders, uh, sad face, and I said, uh, "I said, hey, I'm Pat." He said, "I'm, I'm Tom." I said, "What's going on, Tom?" And then he basically spent about 15 minutes telling me a very agonizing story about a business problem crisis that had been ripping uh, at him for uh, a couple of years. And in the process of that, it was about to take down his marriage as well. And he was really hurting and broken. So I didn't say anything. I just let him talk out. And then when he was finished, I said, uh, Tom, would you mind if I asked you uh, a couple of questions? He said, no, that's okay. I said, uh, Tom, tell me, uh, do you have a best friend or are you in a small group with some other guys? And he, his first reaction was a little bit of a look of shock, but then his chin fell to his chest and he sort of muttered under his breath. He said, no, I used to be in a small group, but to be honest with you, I, I dropped out when these problems started. And uh, By the way, the second question I asked him, I said, I said, that's okay. I said, by the way, uh, secondly, uh, tell me about your Bible reading habits. And, and the same thing is chin fell down to his chest. He said, well, to be honest with you, I, I really haven't been reading my Bible lately. And so I said, that's okay. But uh, it, here's the problem, and you already mentioned it. When women have problems, they tend to move toward relationships. But when men have problems, we tend to move toward isolation. Yep. <clears throat> And so the problem with isolation is that the lion never, if anybody's ever watched National Geographic, you know the, the lion never goes after the herd. The lion always goes after the stray, the one that's become isolated. And so 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, your enemy, the, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Not some group to devour, guys. Someone to devour, Somebody that's become isolated. And so, guys, um, the the one thing that's going to help us the most during difficult times is having a few brothers with, we, with whom we can do life together. So I say in that chapter that the, the one thing that's really going to help you the most is to be in a small group with, uh, you know, one or a few guys where you're doing life together and sharing what's really going on in each other's lives. Well, yeah, that's the key. I mean, I know a lot of guys that have really intimate friendships, but if you're mm -hmm. a Christian man, you better have at least a couple friendships that are godly friendships. And this is the key phrase, I mean, because a lot of times we read Christian books and we, we assume everybody reading that book is a believer, but there are there are guys that interact with mostly non-believers, and they need to realize, yeah. get involved in the game. And I, I love what you just said here, First Peter 5, 8, for your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Well, what does he prowl around? He's prowling around the church. And what is he looking yeah. for? <laughs> He's looking for those isolated. I'm a hunter, so I resonate with that. So, well, yeah. that, that kind of transitions nicely into chapter 3, which is the number one issue men struggle with, which is growth. 
And you called right. the, the subtitle is Becoming a More Kingdom-Minded Man. <laughs> and in that, you wrote, I don't know if you realize this, and sometimes we write these things, we say these things, we don't realize how profound they are until somebody comes alongside of us and, and affirms that. But you wrote something so profound, Pat. I, we just need our guys to stop and pause. When we're talking about spiritual growth, you wrote this. When it comes to spiritual growth, I would condense all the years I've spent teaching into one idea, a Bible, a small group, and serving someone else will, will, some, serving someone else will solve 90% of your problems. And in it, you went on to say, after my wife in the Bible, God has used small groups more than anything else to change my life. That is a huge, weighty statement. Can you unpack this chapter some more? Yeah, so I have to say, Jim, <clears throat> it is a little embarrassing after all these years to have all have the entire ministry boiled down to these three things. But, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> but it's taken, you know, it's taken decades to figure figure the simplicity of this out. <clears throat> and you know, I think when you're in the building phase of life, building a ministry, building a career, you know, you're trying to add, accumulate make things more complicated, but then, you know, it, later than you're trying to simplify, figure out what are the simple, elegant ideas. So um, there are obviously other things that are involved in spiritual growth. And as, as I say in the chapter in this book, The Christian Man, that the, the portal to spiritual growth uh, are the spiritual disciplines but these three are superior. Yes. They are above above the others. They're all important. They're all valuable. Now, that's not to say, okay, so I need to say that this statement, uh, a Bible small group and serving someone else will solve 90% of your problems, that's a generalization, right? Yes. But we use generalizations. Why? Because they're generally true. They're not always true. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but generally true. And here's what I've discovered. If a guy will do these three things, everything else will pretty much fall into place. Yeah. Just, it's just that simple. Well, and also in your book, No Man Left Behind, which I know we're not talking about that right now, you wrote with a, 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 a David Delk and Brett Clemmer. You guys said that you've never seen a man's life radically change apart from regular study of God's Word. Now, that's a paraphrase, but but we discount how important it is to read the Bible, but also to be with a group of men that we can lock arms with to help us move us. Because you said earlier in the podcast, a woman, when she has struggles, she'll lean into and run to relationships where a man will run into isolation. Right. So that, yeah. So how do we, how do we help these guys to run to the right place? And how do we help these guys get involved in small groups? So the most, first of all, a lot of guys are involved in different kinds of small groups, softball teams, yeah. hiking, hiking groups and things like that. So it's not a new concept. So I, I think one thing to do is just demystify it. It's not, it's not some uh, black art that a secret society is keeping cloaked in darkness. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's just doing what guys do anyway. Guys do this all the time, hunting groups, things like that. You know, guys go out to these hunting. You already said you're a hunter, so you probably go out to a, a hunting camp with some guys from time to time. So, uh, first of all, it's it's the normal way of doing life. 
this is a very important sentence, although it doesn't sound very um, uh, upscale or classy. I was trying to not say the word sexy. <laughs> but anyway, it's not. Uh, but here it is. We are made for relationships. Correct. We are made for relationships. So our dear son um, went through a divorce and just was devastated by it and think, thought of himself as, you know, a, a, a failure. And, and, uh, but then eventually he found a, another woman and uh, started to fall in love and was even feeling, I think, tentative about that. And I just told him one day, I said, son, I'm so happy for you. Your mother and I are so happy for you. We are made for relationships. Yep. Yeah. And so it, it, it's good. It's good. And so we're, God, is, God has created us as social beings, not isolated beings. Yeah, I, I just wish that these guys would really, you know, we've got guys right now, they're driving to work, they're in the stress bubble, yeah. and they don't, they think they don't have time for a small group. And I would argue that they don't have time to not be in a small group. It is so important to be around some Christian men to lock shields with. Yeah, and so in that chapter, I talk about, okay, what, 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 what do you actually do when you're in this small group? And I give them a, a very detailed suggested guide for that. So uh, the, I'm, I'm all about application and, and the, the, the practical side. Uh, so I believe that theology without application is not complete. Correct. And so uh, I do uh, the whole the whole piece in here about how they can make a, a one-on-one friend or how they can be part of a small group. Yeah, I loved your story. And if I'm not mistaken, it's pages 144 to about 148. You talk about this stuff. And I've actually culled some of that material out. We send a weekly equipping blast to guys. And I'm going to use some of that as a co- as coaching tips for guys. Here are some things you guys yeah. should do. And I, I know my accountability partner, a guy I meet with every Tuesday, he was my chiropractor when I had a back injury. And I ended up going, man, you and I seem similar. I go, you know, let's get together and have coffee. And I said, well, here's what I struggle with. What do you struggle with? He goes, same thing. I go, let's meet every week and help each other. And we've been, we'll be lifelong friends because just ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ask the yeah. question. Yeah. So, hey. Uh, and, then, and by the way, also in that chapter, I give you a guide on how not to start a one-on-one relationship. <laughs> Actually, I, I did that. I tried to do that in kind of a, <clears throat> a funny way. So, um can I read that? Yeah, yes. So let's say you think you and Daniel might click. How do you find out if he might develop into a friend? The first thing to know about starting a friendship is what not to do. Don't violate the process of relationships. That's a whole other podcast. Here's how not to go about it. This is the quote. Hey, Daniel, how's it going, my brother? Say, listen, I really like you a lot. I'm looking for a new friend, a close friend, a true friend, someone I would rush into a burning building to save and vice versa. Someone who could be a faithful friend so we could be honest, open, authentic, vulnerable, and and transparent with each other. We would share from the depths of our soul. So, Daniel, I was wondering if you would be that friend for me. We'll have each other's backs. It'll be great. Friends for life. Jonathan and David stuff. We'll vacation with our families and spend time at each other's homes. We'll meet regularly and hold each other accountable. What do you think, Daniel? Would you be my 
best friend. <laughs> oh, you know what you do with that guy? You run the other way. <laughs> <laughs> so and that's the funny part. But then we flip it over and talk about how to actually not violate the process of relationships. Oh, man, that's so good. I, I, I really love the book. It's so pragmatic. It's just got some real stuff in there just guys can grab hold of. And it's really an easy read, which I, I mean – I'm read, I read 30 or 40 books a year with the podcast and stuff, and I need easy yeah. reads. And, and guys, you know what? 70% of Barnes & Noble book sales are women. You know, so men want something that's going to get them. They can read easily. So, hey, you know, your chapter five, we talk about children a lot on this podcast, but I wanted to address chapter five, your chapter on children. The subtitle is A Dad Who Really Makes a Difference because you taught us a phrase uh, I, and I think you've got this from Larry Crabb. You, I think in the book you gave yeah. him credit. But this yeah. phrase was so powerful, Pat, I've never actually heard this phrase before. Yeah, and right. I think for our guys, it could be a game changer. You talk about the different types of dads, but the, mm-hmm. the, the Crabb's formula is this. Yes, I love you, and no, you can't have it your way. Will you unpack that and give our guys some advice there? Yeah, so of course it's straight out of Proverbs, right? Uh, Follies bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline rises from him. And and then uh, the and then Ephesians six four talks about how uh, dads should not exasperate their children. You know, so the uh, the idea of loving the kids and not provoking them to anger and so forth. So here's the idea: the way I see it, if you look at that phrase, "Yes, I love you," that's the unconditional love piece, and no, you can't have your own way. So uh, there are there are dads who would might say, "Yes, I love you," and "Yes, you can have your own way." Well, what what is that? That's permissive parenting, right? And so that's the that's the unstructured kid. Uh, that's the kid who grows up without discipline in his life. Correct. That's the the, the kid that grows up and doesn't understand uh, what it, what it means when his first boss says, "No, you don't understand." I'm not asking you to do this. I'm telling you to do this. And then you have, you know, yes, I love you. And uh, 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 no, you can't have your own way, which is the right way. Or no, I don't love you. And yes, you can have your own way. Well, that's that's the worst of all possible situations. A father who signals to his children he doesn't love them and doesn't care what they do. And then the, the final one would be the the no. I don't love you, and and though you can't have your way own way, the, the authoritarian yeah. figure. Yeah, so. so anyway, the, the, we draw those distinctions, but most of the chapters actually spent on you know talking about what you know what the, how to have a parenting style and some practical ideas that really make a difference. Um, in fact, I I basically and this really what I'm doing in this book, I'm trying to pull together all the best ideas from over the years and put them in one. Well, you know, it's really interesting. When I read your book, I wrote in the book, at the end of the book, I go, this book is the who's who of great men's ministry leaders. Because you in there, you 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 deal with crab. You dealt with, yeah. uh, there was a little Eldridge section I read in there about the three C's. I'm like, that's Eldridge. You know, it was really, I love how you just pulled all these great works together uh, and you used what your men uh, storyboarded to put it into like a, an MVP book. But, you know, when we talk about uh, dad's, I thought it was really interesting. You gave some guys some wise advice, and, and you're a 70-year-old man, and you've done uh, ministry to men for 40 years now. So tell me about this statement you wrote in your book. Don't give yourself to those who don't absolutely need you at the expense of those who do. 
Yeah, so this is just a takeoff on the uh, the concept of triage, you know, when the helicopters bring the wounded soldiers in. Uh, there are three groups. There's There are those who are going to live, whether they receive immediate treatment or not. There are those who are going to, to die no matter what you do. And then there are those who will survive, but only if they receive immediate treatment. And so the triage is the process of figuring out which of these wounded soldiers do we treat in what order. <clears throat> and so the idea here is to do a little spiritual triage. So I think, is that, that probably is in the life balance chapter, right? Yeah. I, I think, yeah. Anyway, uh, on priorities. So the idea is just really trying to figure out who, who are the people that really need me, that without me, they are doomed. Well, without me, uh, yeah. And then so that will immediately draw you to family and a few close friends, usually. And then there are other people who really are only interested in you for what you can do for them. And maybe you're doing a transaction with them, and so they're doing something for you too. And so that's good. I mean, let's go ahead and do the transaction. Well, let's keep it in perspective. You know, let's not sacrifice our families on the altar of business success, for example. Yeah, I thought that was really important. I know for a lot of guys, especially these guys that are in the stress bubble, they're in the arena, they're these guys that are getting it done. They have a yeah. lot of demands on them. And a lot of times, I know for me, the struggle I have is thinking, oh, these every more people need me than really actually need me. And so there's yeah. a humility in saying, who really needs me you know at, at my funeral yeah, who it. are the that's ones it. that are going to matter yeah who's going to be crying at my funeral that's the that's the big question no yeah, that, that's yeah. right out of the that's the man in the mirror question that's the that's the one question that's the that's one of two things in the man in the mirror that most people talk about is that question or that illustration about who's going to be crying at my funeral. no that's well it's because it, it's everything right i mean i can't tell you how many men i've talked to who are 70 now who are looking back going man if i only if i only if i only because they didn't prioritize that stuff, and and those people who are crying at their funeral aren't going to be crying anymore because they weren't around, and that's the sad well, that, thing. That's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book because so many guys who read The Man in the Mirror have said to me, "said Oh, I wish I had this book twenty years ago." So what I wanted to do is I wanted to come back to the the, the guy, and there's quite a bit quite a bit of uh, research to indicate that when men turn uh, get to be in their thirties they really sort of buckle down and get serious about their lives. So I wanted to write a book for those guys so they could do it right the first time because it is not the critic who counts, <laughs> not the man who points out how strong, strong man stumbles, stumbles <laughs> or where the doer of beats could have done them better. That credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena. Dude, I, <laughs> you, I love it. I love it. I'm going to use that as my intro for our podcast. Now <laughs> I, think you should, I, I think you should make that. The theme of your whole ministry. Well, that's what it is. That's why we call us. That's where we got the ministry name is from that speech. I'm kidding you. Of course it is. <laughs> I just was thinking. I did, I did my homework, dude. Well, you I know did what? my homework, you, dude. And you, you did your homework too, by the way. I you, really appreciate it. You that. just never know. Well, you know, I don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved Man in the, I loved Man in the Mirror. I mean, I have three yeah. copies in my library. But if I'm really honest, the Christian man I, I prefer it because I think yeah. you have everything in the man in the, the man in the mirror, 
but you've you've pulled other thoughts and concepts out and you've put it into a book that actually to, in my opinion uh and i i mean i i mean don't get me wrong you're like i i mean i i'm a you're i'm a no, huge I, fan i get it look yeah i'm hoping you're right i'm hoping you're right because i want to see men be able to lead powerful lives transformed by the gospel of jesus and i think this is the book to do i really do i can think you, so hey, can you believe there's no book in print called the christian man duh <laughs> there is now brother <laughs> hey so i want to i want to end on the final one i'm gonna but i'm gonna it's only chapter four but but I want to ha- have you reiterate something. You wrote something in here that I've been saying to men for years. And your chapter four on marriage, you called this, the chapter title itself is, is worth the price of admission, finding a new best friend in my wife. And I think this is a huge issue in the church where church divorce rates are as high in as out of the church. And so, you know, you're, I love this. And will you walk us through your 70% mindset. I have never heard of this in my life, and I thought yeah, it was right. really interesting in identifying your wife as your best friend. Yeah, this is the first time I've written about it. So it, it's a really huge idea, guys, if you're listening out there. So here's the there's a family system scholar. His name is Edwin Freeman, and uh, he wrote that uh, in reality, no marriage does better than about 70%. Now, again, this is a generalization, but this is, you know, so it's an opinion, but there are some opinions that actually matter, you know, because they're based on, yeah. he's, a, he's a social scientist, right? And so very experienced. And so when I read that, I bought, I fell back in my chair, literally, I fell back in my chair. I said, whoa. And I showed it to my wife and I said, I just showed it to her. I said, "Hey, would you read this and tell me what you think?" She read it. And she said, "Well, that's." A, she said, "Well, that sounds about right to me." And I said, "What?" <laughs> yeah. So let's do a little thought experiment. 70 percent of seven days, four point nine days, so about five days. So the bottom line is, guys, that even the very best marriages are going to have a couple of days a week where there are moods, stresses, pressures, and things like that. Uh, and so the, the magic here is that you may have been thinking that your marriage is not very good, but the good news is you actually, your marriage may be doing a lot better than you thought it should be doing once you understand and adopt the 70% mindset. And, uh, and just... It's called managing expectations, right? Yes. It's adjusting expectations to, and I know a lot of guys do get frustrated because their their wives, um, well, they're just not perfect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> but 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 seriously, about seventy percent of the time, and it's not two days, you know, it's it's seventy percent spread out over every day, really. But yeah, so uh, oh, let's let's do another experiment there. I haven't done this one. This is brand new. I just had this idea. So if you're awake for 16 hours and you're at work for half of those hours, and uh, you're on your way to and from work for an hour, so let's just say you have let's just say you have six hours a day at home. What's 70 percent of? Well, what's 30 percent of six hours? It's 1.8 hours. So a couple hours a day couple hours a day it would be normal that they're not really 
peachy creamy and everything is lovely and wonderful. A couple hours a day, you just might expect that. Hey, well, for example, when you're talking about balancing the family checkbook or how do we discipline our child or what do we do about this school bullying situation? I mean, these are not fun times, Correct. but they're just part, but they're part of life. And this 70% mindset is, is a way to get a Get, get your mind around that. Well, you know, it's interesting. You shared earlier in the podcast that your you, your wife had asked you the question, is there even anything you like about me? But yeah. but yet when you filled out your bio for our podcast, you called Patsy your best friend. You actually yeah. chi- subtitled chapter four, finding a new best friend in my wife. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I, how, how did you go through that process. My wife is my best friend after 27 years, but the first 10 years, yeah. she was not my wife, my best friend. She was my lover. She was the mother of my children. She was my, you know, covenant, <laughs> my, you know, my, the promise of covenant, but she became my best friend later. How did you and Patsy transition into a relationship where she is your best friend? Well, both of us, first of all, I've got a little sentence that's in the book, uh, but a sentence that uh, is kind of the credo for our marriage. I let you be you and you let me be me. So I don't try to control her. She doesn't try to control me. This this getting out of the power struggle and getting out of the critical spirit is extremely important. Now, uh, the, the best way I know to do this is to pray the marriage prayer. And it's in the book, but I'll, in fact, I've got three versions, I think, in the book. But Yeah, yep. uh, the, yeah. So, but the marriage prayer is... From a book that David Delk and I wrote called The Marriage Prayer. And, but you don't need to buy the book. I'll just tell you the prayer. It's 68 words that capture the essence of what the Bible teaches about marriage. Guys, you ready? Listening? Father, I said, till death do his part, I want to meet it. Help me to love you more than her and her more than anything or anyone else. Help me bring her into your presence today. Make us one like you are three in one. I want to hear her, cherish her, and serve her so she would love you more and we can bring you glory. And pray this prayer every day. And the bottom line is, is that when I started praying that prayer, uh, so we've, we've always had this, you know, she's inside, I'm outside, right? So one day I was reading a book in my favorite chair. She walked by with one of those big black, Trash bags, you know, plastic trash bags, headed out to the trash thing. That's inside. Okay, that's her. On this particular day, I next thing I know, I, I've leaped to my feet. I've said, here, let me get that for you. And, and, and I'm, I took two steps, and I'm, and I'm standing there with this trash bag in my hand, I, and I thought to myself, wow, what just happened? And I realized that what had happened because I was praying this prayer every day, this marriage prayer, that a phrase had popped into my mind, I want to hear her, cherish her, and serve her so she would love you more and we can bring you glory. Remember, a Bible, a small group, and serving someone else. Yep. Yep. Well, and then also you said that your wife was one of your greatest components in your spiritual growth. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that's the thing. Well, that's the thing about men's ministry. You know, we get a lot of flack and people say, well, what about women? Well, my thought is, hey, we don't want weak women. We want strong women. 
strong women help make strong men, not weak women. So, hey, uh, man, we're already out of time, Pat, and and I want to honor your your schedule, but I really appreciate you, what you've done for uh, men of this country and this world. And, uh, guys, hey, hey, Pat, how can our guys pick up your Christian Men's Coaching Guide and get a copy also of the Christian Man, the book? Okay, so probably the easiest thing to do is go to christianmanbook.com. Or you can go to thechristianmanbook.com. Or you can go to maninthemirror.org and find it as well. But, yeah, christianmanbook.com. And uh, and there's a link there to download this free coaching guide. Yeah. I hope guys will do that and take a look at it. I mean, it's, it's, it's free. And – but I – and. I told my I told my wife. I think it was yesterday or the day before. We just got back from a camping trip, and on the way back in the car, I said, "You know, I think that this coaching guide, being able to distill all these years of ministry down to thirty-three pages, besides being a little embarrassing that that's all there's that's <laughs> that's all there is." I said, "I do think that this is my biggest accomplishment in ministry is getting these thirty-three pages put together." So it's the Christian Man Coaching Guide. And you can get it at ChristianManBook.com, and it's free. Well, I thank you so much, Pat, for coming on our show, sharing your wisdom and your experience with our men in the arena and for being a man in the arena yourself. So uh, thank you on behalf of men around the world. Yeah, that's great. And thank you for your very generous words about this book, too. I do hope men will find it to be helpful. That's why I wrote it, for the glory of God and no other reason. I did want to say something uh, to you, Jim and Dale. I just really want to... First of all, thank you for having me on your incredible podcast. I have to tell you that I have never in all these 33 years that I've been working with men and doing radio interviews, television shows, podcasts, and all these different things, I have never been on a better program in all these years. Really? Yeah, no, the enthusiasm, the forethought, the preparation – the humility, the passion, uh, and of course the shared common cause. For sure, these things are uh, above and beyond. So anyway, I just I, I just thought I wanted you to hear that from me. Well, you, uh, gosh, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of choked up right now. I really I'm really impressed. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, I try to take these books. We you know we've got Jack Deer coming on the podcast in about an hour. I try to take these books, read them cover to cover. I mark them up. I mean, I mark these books up like crazy because for me, you know, a lot went into what you wrote here. And so I want to honor you in the, in the process because I know what goes into writing books. And, and if to have a guy just ask generic questions to me is dishonoring. I want to honor the book and I want to honor the man. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I meant what I said. So you guys take care. I Love appreciate you. Have a great day, Pat. Hope to see you around. Me too. See you, man. All right. Well, hey, guys, I appreciate that. So, guys, what's next? Let's get our boots on the ground. We want to end every uh, podcast with an action item. So here's the action item for this week's podcast. I want you to go to christianmanbook.com. I want you to download that free coaching guide. I don't know if you heard Pat say it. He said that was that's probably one of the best contributions he's made. That is free. Go get that book. And guys, also, I want you to buy The Christian Man. Buy the book. This is an easy read. Uh, you're going to love it. Guys, 
this is a great book to have for your library. Every Christian man should have some kind of library. So get out there and take care of that business, guys. This will really, really help you. Hey, guys, we'll also post our boots on the ground action item on our weekly equipping blast that you can subscribe to at menintherena.org when you grab a free PDF version of our bathroom book for men. So make sure you head on over to Facebook, join the Men in the Arena Facebook forum for men with men from 86 nations around the world. Guys, did you know that the Men in the Arena is a nonprofit, crowdfunded organization that exists to inspire men to become their best version? Because of a large group of generous donors like you, we're able to offer free this podcast weekly equipping blast discussion forums, plus all of our small group resources for missionaries and men in underdeveloped nations. They are free because of this group of donors. So you can find out more about us at meninthearena.org. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. Order your copy of The Christian Man. And be a man. Men in the Arena is a non-profit, crowdfunded organization that exists to inspire men to become their best version. We're able to freely offer this podcast, weekly equipping blasts, discussion forums, plus our small group resources to the three M's, active military, missionaries, and men in underdeveloped nations. This could only happen because of a large group of generous donors like you. You can find out more about how to support our ministry at meninthearena.org. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.